Good morning, everyone. Um, if you would, turn with me. We're going to be in the book of Malachi per uh, our series here. And we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 7, where Troy led off last week. And we're actually going to walk through um, verse chapter 4, verse 3. So it's going to be Malachi 3, 7 through 4, 3. Um, this morning, as we kind of get our way into that, <clears throat> I want to begin by maybe looking back at some of the, um, the history and the background information real quick, just so it makes sense um, to why we chose this book as we're looking at the Christmas season, the Advent season, and preparing our hearts. Um, I didn't do this uh, justice in this as I started off this morning, but Advent simply means the coming of someone notable. And so as we look backwards at uh, Advent and we look at the first coming of the most notable person to be born on this planet, um, the easiest way for us to uh, really try to understand how that moment was and how it felt was to place ourselves in the shoes of the people. That's difficult and that is hard. But in the Old Testament, this is the last book that was written. And so there would have been about a 400-year span uh, in between Malachi and the birth of Jesus. But it still gives us a way of trying to understand what they were preparing for. And so as we prepare our hearts next week for the coming, uh, as we celebrate the, the birth of Christ, I think that walking through Malachi helps prepare our hearts for that. But also Advent, um, one thing that we focus on is not only the birth of Christ, but we remember and we celebrate that he will also return one day. And so there will be a second Advent. And so first Advent birth as an infant in a stable in the middle of nowhere. Second Advent will be one of victory and um, putting all evil to shame and conquering it all. And so with all of that being the case, Malachi um, is a book, and you might have guessed this, but it's written by a prophet named Malachi. Um, the, the Who he's writing to is um, a group of about 150,000 Israelites. Why that's important is in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's two chapters that's almost telling one long story of the Israelites coming back to Jerusalem after their exile. So there's this time period where the people of God uh, was really judged by God, but God used uh, evil people around them essentially to come in and to take over their land and to disperse them all over the world essentially. And so they do this, and the reason why they were judged by God is because they began to worship false gods. That they were no longer worshiping the true God, but worshiping false gods. They were a people of God that were really not people of God. They were a people of God in name, but not in nature. They were a people of God in name or in commitment, but not in action. And so God brought judgment upon them. He spread them out throughout the world through the people whom were evil among them. And in doing so, he brought this judgment on them. But in some time later, he used these two guys, one named Ezra, one named Nehemiah. Ezra brought the, about 75,000 Israelites back to Jerusalem area. And what they do is they rebuild the temple of God. Now, there was a time period where they failed to do that, but eventually they do. And they rebuild the temple of God. And what that signified was they were going to be a people who worshiped God again. 
And then uh, some time later, uh, Nehemiah enters the scene and he comes and he builds the walls back. And so what that was to do was to establish that them, now they are a people. So first they were a people of the worship. Now they're a people of the land. And so they do these two things to show their significance as God's people again. The issue, though, is when you read the book of Malachi, as we've already seen, we saw just this pollution of offerings made to the Lord in chapter 1. We see a breaking of the covenant between God and between husband and wife in chapter 2 as David preached. And even last week as Troy was preaching, we see this um, rebellion once again of breaking of covenant and all of these things and the judgment of God coming upon them. See, the problem is it's only been about 75 years since the people of God had made it back. So once again, Israel falls into the same trap that they fell in through all throughout the century is they fell into this trap of generation after generation forgetting. There would be this great exodus or this great moment in which God reveals himself to his people. They worship him. They celebrate him. They make a commitment to him. But it doesn't make it to the next generation. And so then the judgment of God has to come. That's exactly what we're going to pick up this moment, this morning in just a moment. But in the book of Malachi, we also see this one main purpose. And I haven't highlighted this a lot in our sermons. It's... The purpose of the book of Malachi is so that the nations will repent and be ready to receive the Messiah. And these last two sermons in the book of Malachi is going to paint that picture better than any other scripture we've looked at so far. It's that the nations would the nation would repent and be ready to receive their Messiah. And the way this happens is Malachi is a prophet, so therefore presenting the words of God to his people. And he does so in seven oracles or seven moments of God's uh, heartfelt words to his people. Seven moments of these words of despair from God to his people. The first one was that God's love was denied. I looked at that one and I looked at God's honor despised in the first sermon through Malachi And then David looked at God's covenant disregarded. And then Troy last week brought in the information on God's justice being delivered. And that's exactly what we saw in that. Then this morning, we're going to look at the fifth and the sixth oracle. And what we're going to see is God's command despised, uh, dismissed. God's command dismissed. And God's promise distinction. God's command dismissed. The people once again dismissed the commands of God. But we're going to see a light at the end of the tunnel as we get into chapter, the end of chapter 3 and the first of chapter 4. And we're going to see that God is promising a distinction among his people. And so as we do that, we're going to look at this fifth and sixth oracle. And we're going to do so by looking at chapter 3, 7 through chapter 4, verse 3. And so I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I do want you to read along with me. I'm going to read it from my Bible here, but it's also on the screen. It says this, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have kept them. 
have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring a full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to rest, says the Lord of to test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your sorrel, and your vine in the field shall not fall bare, fall to bare, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is it profit for us keeping his charge or of walking as in the morning morning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but God to put God to test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. A book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be stump will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the stoles of your feet on the day when I act against act, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray now as we break open your word, God, you would lead, guide, and direct me. The words I would expose would be your words and your words alone. And Father, as we seek to apply these truths to our lives, God, you would be with us as well. We love you and we thank you. In your son's holy name, amen. All right. So, as I said earlier, we're going to be looking at two oracles, two moments in where God is speaking to his people, but it's not just talking to his people. It's not just presenting information, but he's doing it out of a, a deep concern and care for his people that he's eagerly waiting for something to happen. He's displaying it, really this idea of putting his heart on his sleeve per se, that he's trying to compel them into repenting of their sin. Now, we're going to look at this in two really points 
And it's really just the oracles. The first thing we're going to see is found in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3. And we're going to look at God's command dismissed again. God's commands dismissed. It says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them going to pause there because this is why I brought out so much of the history in the beginning that this is a cycle for Israel is that time in and time out they would worship God they would turn to God they would they would trust in him and in him alone but it would then never fail that the next generation or even that next generation sometimes that God was gracious to them sometimes they would last longer than others and it would never fail, though, that they would fall back into this same false worship, this same uh, lack of dependence upon the Lord. And time in and time out, we see this abandoning, abandoning the Father whom has provided for them. And that's exactly what he's exposing in these first few words. He says, from the days of your fathers. Now, we could, only, we could even just simply go back 75 years. And say that they did this within this 75 year span. But you can even go back to Abraham. You can look at Abraham's life where there's this moment of trusting in God. But in this next moment, it's him essentially saying his wife is his sister so that he won't die at the hands of his enemy. Really, this idea of him giving his wife over to his enemy to sleep with so that it would protect his own life. You see, throughout all of the Old Testament, all of the bad things in which God's people do, it's not as if God is trying to hide the wickedness of man. But the more the wickedness of man exposes the character of man, it's exposing the grace and the love of God. And so he begins by saying, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statues, and you have not kept them. He's saying, look, you are no different than those who have come before you. You have abandoned my... my <coughs> You have abandoned my statues. You have not kept them. But then he pleads with them. He encourages them. He gives them a charge here. He says, return to me and I will return to you. That if you would commit yourself, if you would repent, as we said, the main point of this entire book is, if you would repent and turn to me, I will turn back to you. But then they ask this question, how shall we return? Are they coming from this out of a place of true, genuine, heartfelt repentance? And they really just don't know how to get there? Or are they maybe too far gone, gone where they just don't understand how to be connected to God again? We don't really know. All we can do is take this question at face value. How can we return they ask this question very simply and plainly. And look at God's response. Will, God, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So they ask this question, how shall we return? And God responds with another question. And he says, will man rob God? So how can they respond? How can they return to God? They can quit robbing God is what he's saying in asking this question. Which causes them to ask another question. How are we robbing you? 
How have we robbed you? They don't understand. They don't even see the error of their way. They don't see their sinfulness. <coughs> They're completely unaware of how far gone they have become. And he goes on to respond to them. He says, you have robbed me in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. I'm going to pause there. Because in the Old Testament, there's this idea of tithes and contributions. What I want us to see is a separation there of tithes and contributions. You have your tithes which was a 10% of the storehouse per se, uh, 10% of their income, if it be uh, financial income or if it be animal income or whatever the case may be, could have been a grain offering. They were called to bring it to the storehouse, bring it to the temple of God. And the purpose of that 10%, and then it says contributions, and that would have been even more than that. So it most likely would have been closer to like 20% that the people of God would have brought to the storehouse, brought to the temple. And the purpose behind that was to take care of the, the Levites, which was, were simply the people that were in charge of running the temple of God. If they were, the, the, the priests would have been in that category, but so would have the other people that would have just taken care of this temple. And the point behind bringing this into the storehouse, to bring this into the temple, was to take care of God's people. What I want us to be completely understanding of here is that God did not need these people to bring money into his storehouse, to his temple, to provide for his people. But the way in which God designed this, if you go back to the Old Testament law, the way God designed this was using his people to provide for his people. It's kind of like this. This may be a stretch in us understanding this, is that our job, as we're going to look at in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, as we end as we always do, our job is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded us, right? Or to put very simply, as we put in our mission statement, is to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, right? It is our job to go and share the gospel with those around us. But do we save anyone in doing that? Absolutely not. God is the one who saves his people. God is the one who uses the spirit to expose their sin, to provide his grace so that they can trust and believe in Jesus to be saved. God does not need us to save anyone, but the way in which God has designed things to be is by using his people to go and proclaim the gospel. Here it is no different. The way that God designed this to be was so that the people of God would bring financial uh, contributions to the temple to provide for his people. Very, very simple. But the reason why he did it this way is because of what we should rightly understand for us today and for them in this moment was that everything they had was given to them by God. That if God is the sovereign God in control that he is, then everything that they owned, everything that they obtained, everything that they had was due to God intervening and providing for them in their life. And so what he's saying is that I have given you all that you are. So I'm simply to asking and, and pleading and telling you to, to bring back what I'm asking of you. So how are you robbing God is I've given you 100% of what you have and now you're just called to give back 10% and whatever the contributions would have been for them in the particular moments of their life. So in verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The food in my house was talking about to provide for his priest. Okay. And thereby put me to test. I'm going to pause there. 
because we should not put God to test unless God's word specifically says put him to test. This, as we're going to look at in just a moment, as we kind of look at the new covenant, the new testament, this was a specific command to the people in Malachi's day. We should not take this right here to a heart in our day and time. He says, put me to test, says the Lord. If I will not open the windows of the heaven for you and pour down to you in blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what he's saying here is put me to test. Bring your tithe, bring your contributions, and I'm going to provide for you that even the nations around you will look at you and call you blessed. He's saying, look, do it. Put me to test here. We should be very careful to know that we don't put God to test, but God was calling them to put him to test. So God was telling them to do exactly what he meant here. Now, when we look at this, why, what, what is he getting at here? With this whole robbing God, with this whole bringing the tithes and contributions, what he's getting at here, and the way we should biblically understand tithes in this context, is that it was a representation of a worship and dependency upon Christ or upon God. A worship and dependency upon God is that they would rightly understand that God was the one that provided everything that they had. So they brought back the 10% as well as the contributions and gave it back to God. The first fruits, the first thing they did was brought that to God and it was showing a dependency upon God. But because it was given to the, the temple worship, because it was given to the priest and the sacrifices and all of those things, it was a way of also worshiping God. So if you're anything like me, your question now may would be is what is our application here? Do we put God to test? Do we bring tithes? Do we bring contributions to the storehouse? Do we have a storehouse? Do we have a temple? A lot of questions that could come out in this. You may even have grown up in me and you think you actually maybe know the answers to these questions. Turn over to Luke chapter 21, real quick. It's not on the screen. I should have thought ahead. But Luke chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 says this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw the poor widow putting her two small copper coins. And he said, truly, truly, or truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all have contributed out of abundance, but she is giving out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Now this verse even takes and gets twisted. When you take verse 21, chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and then you take Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, what you get is a beautiful, beautiful storm for prosperity gospel. You get a beautiful uh, just... Uh, formula or recipe for that guy that you see on the TV that says, if you give this much, I'm going to pray for you. Maybe even send you a cloth, the prayer cloth to put over your head. And it's me representation of me praying for you. When you look at these two verses, there comes a lot of misunderstanding. But what I want to be clear about here and what I want us to understand about tithes and offerings is very simply this, is that 
when we look at bringing 10% to the storehouse, to the temple, that is Old Testament law written to the Israelites. And we do not see an example of a same prescription in the New Testament. But what we do see is a moment like Luke 21, 1 through 4, and we see other moments that are very similar. And it's really this idea of giving out of the abundance of our hearts. It's not giving a 10% because we're making a checklist off of our thing. It's not even giving a specific amount or a specific percentage so that you can mark off what you've done for the Lord that day. But rather, it is giving out an abundance of the heart. It's giving out of a love for God, a, a desire to see the mission of Christ being known to the world around them. Now, what I want us to understand in this is that I would argue that in the New Testament, we do not see the prescription to give 10% of our wealth to the church. We do see a prescription to give out of a desire of our hearts to see the gospel made known. Now, what I want to say is that it would be very easy for me as a church planner that is small and looking to grow and to reach the Columbus area, to reach the Air Force, to reach the college here across the road. And it would be very easy to give a prescription to say, Scripture tells you you should give 10% plus some. But in all reality, it doesn't tell us that in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. What it tells us is that we should give as an abundance of our heart to see God's gospel made known. So, when we look at this, the prescription is not to tithe 10% of our money as he was calling them to do. The prescription is... It's for us to understand rightly that God has given us all that we have. Your home, your vehicle, your job, your occupation, your family. And you're called to be a good steward with what God has provided you. There's a reason why there's times where people sleep on my couch. Or there's a reason why there's times where I've loaned my vehicle out. There's a reason why I'm okay with people coming and eating dinner with us multiple times in the week. There's a reason why you guys practice those same things in your lives. There's a reason why you provide to Redeemer Church and you've done to other churches that you've been a part of in the past. It's not because you're doing it out of obligation, but it's a desire of your heart to see the gospel of Christ known to the world around us. And so what I want to say here is that we're not giving because Scripture calls us to give 10%, but we're giving because God calls us to give to His kingdom in a way that is honoring to Him. In the different moments of our life, that may look like a lot less than 10%. And in other moments, that looks, may look like a lot more. I've heard of people that actually God has blessed with wealth. And so what they do is the opposite side of what you would say tithing. Is they give 90% and they live off 10%. Very wealthy people, not normal people. Then you see moments in life where someone maybe just life hit them hard hospital debt or whatever the case may be and there may be best for them to be good stewards of their money to try to pay some of those things down and give what they can to the church the reality here is simple is it's not about what we're giving or the amount we're giving it's about the motive and the heart behind what we're doing so don't look at this as a prescription that you must do this and don't even even look at it as a test of the lord because that was a specific prescription to the people of malachi's day not to redeem our church today the prescription for us is to simply understand that God has given us all that we are. So we are called to be good stewards of what he has given us. So, but the people dismiss this. That's what you see in this, right? You see their response is, 
How shall we return? How have we robbed you? Just a dismissal after dismissal of God's word to his people. He calls them to put him to test. We don't know what happens after that. But what we do know is in verse 13, we get into this next oracle, this next um, words from God. And he looks at this idea of God promising distinction. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is it profit of our keeping his charge or of our walking in the morning before the Lord of hosts? So he makes two more statements. Says you have spoke hard against me. And the response is, how have we done so? How have we spoke hard against you? It's almost like this moment when a child is getting onto by a father or mother and their immediate response is to back talk. Like, I love you guys. My kids do it. I did it when I was a kid. And I would guarantee that almost everyone in this room did it as a kid. And even now, as their parents try to give them good uh, adult advice, you almost even do it now, right? It's just natural to push back. And that's exactly what's going on here. God says, look, you, you spoke hard against me. And they're like, how have I done that? They're not speaking out of a place of goodness. They're speaking out of a place of arrogance. And he specifically tells them how they've done it. In verse 14, he says, You have done this by said, it is vain to serve God. That means it is pointless to serve God. It is not bringing us any goodness, any merit, any significance in our life to serve God. They even go on saying, what is it to profit us for keeping his charge or of us walking in the morning before the Lord of hosts? What good is it to us is what they're saying. It has brought us no good. It has brought us no joy. It has brought us no peace. But for those that have been here and maybe you haven't, if you remember back at the beginning, they were bringing blind sheep to the Lord. They weren't serving God. They were half-heartedly walking through the rituals of following God. So they weren't truly surrendering their life to them. So of course it was no good to them because they weren't in a heartfelt worship of God. They were in half-hearted worship of God, bringing whatever remained to the temple of God and defiling his temple in those ways. And because of their disbelief, because of their arrogance, because of their their rejection of God's holiness and law and commands, it led them to the depravity that we see in verse 15. It says, and now we call the arrogant blessed. The evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. If you're similar to my age, you may remember a moment around 2010 to 2012. And if you're not similar to my age, you may remember it when you were in like fifth grade. Who knows? But there was the phrase YOLO, you only live once. Dumb reality, right? True reality, but dumb in the way they thought of it. The idea behind that statement was, Let's live it up. Let's live this life how we want to live it because you only live once. There's a reality to that, yes. This is, the, this is how they're living here. 
They, they think they've got away with rejecting and turning against and living against God so much that it seems as if the evildoers put God to test and they escape. So why would we obey God? Because there's nothing good coming from, uh, from it for us. And all the evildoers around us are prospering. So the people of God are saying, why? Why would we do this? They were so far gone in their depravity that they just didn't even understand the goodness of God. Because they have never exposed the goodness of God in their life. But, verse 16. Before I get into verse 16, I want to make this next thing very clear. It's throughout the Old Testament you have the Israelites. that are God's chosen people. We see that time in and time out. But what I want us to understand about that is that not everyone that was an Israelite was truly God's people. What I mean by that is you have a theocracy in the Old Testament. You have a nation that is governed and ran by God directly. But not everyone in said nation truly trusted as God as their Savior. Trusted as God to redeem and to provide for them. We see that time in, time out throughout Scripture. We see that in this moment here. Because there's this group of people that we just exposed. They're saying, what does it profit us to do what is right, essentially? Then verse 16 says this. And those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord said, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 16, the very part of this, it says, then those who feared the Lord. There were some there that did not agree with this group of people over here that were talking negative of God or talking negative of following Christ or even saying it was better for them to follow the things of this world. There was a group of people that actually feared God in Israel. And what does God do with this group of people? They even, they even found each other. They even cooperated together to, to depend on one another, to walk through this together. And what does it say God does? He paid attention. He heard them. When we fear God and seek to live our lives for him, God hears us. He honors that. That doesn't mean that we're going to get paid tenfold for any tithe or offering or anything we give to the church. What that means is that God is going to take care of his people. It doesn't always mean prosperity. It does not always mean good. It does not always mean joy, but it means God is providing for his people in the end. But it says that he wrote a book of remembrance. It was written before him and those who feared the Lord had esteemed his name. We don't know who wrote this book. Was it an angel that wrote their names down before God? Was it the people that wrote the names down? Um, we don't know. We don't know any of those details. But what we do know is there's this group of people that set themselves aside because they feared God. And how does God respond to that in verse 17? He says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my, make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares the son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. 
the reality here. He says, look, you're going to see the distinction between the wicked, which are those who did not trust in God, and the, the righteous as those who did trust in God. What I want to be clear about in that idea is righteous does not mean sinless. Righteous does not mean perfect. Righteous does not mean that one that does not make error or fault in their life. Righteous man before God is one who simply trusts in God. We are all sinful, falling short of the glory of God. We are evil to the core. We are not good people that happen to do bad things. We are bad people that only do good things in the might of God. So to make us righteous is not because of anything we've done, but it's everything that God has done for us. It is us just simply trusting in God. And he's making this clear here. And then all throughout the book of Psalms, you see that clear distinction made. And so what God is saying is he's setting a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous and the wicked, between the ones who serve God and the one who do not serve God. And he's remembering those who served him and he will honor that and it will be good for them. See, all throughout the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 explains this to us, is that people were looking forward to a Messiah that was to come. And they were trusting in that one to save them. This group of people would have been doing exactly that. They feared the Lord. They were looking forward to the one God was sending. And they were trusting in that Messiah to save them. And by faith they will be saved and they were saved. Hebrews chapter 12. The the heroes of faith is what we a lot of times refer to it as. It is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith they were saved in Christ. Looking forward to the one that was to come. So the distinction here is between wicked and righteous. Wicked, arrogant, righteous, trusting. Very simple. Same thing in our life today. Wicked, arrogant, who trusts in something or someone else to save them, even if it's themselves. Righteous, those who trust in God and trust in God alone. The third thing we're going to see about God's promised distinction is it is a day that is coming. The thing about these three verses is these three verses are powerful, they're wonderful, they're wildly misunderstood, and were mild, wildly misunderstood even in Jesus' day. Troy taught on this last week because even his scripture kind of points to the same dis- misunderstanding of what the Messiah was to be. But let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Behold, The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all the evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves of the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. How is this misunderstood? Is that in Jesus' in Jesus's day and time, they were expecting a Savior to ride in on a white stallion with a sword in hand, whoop and tail. Someone that was going to come in take down the Roman Empire, establish a kingdom much like King Saul did in his day. 
A king that would establish an earthly kingdom that would not fall and would not fail. They were looking for a king to do exactly this, to to knock people down, to burn them up, to separate them, to destroy is exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for an earthly judgment of God's people. But what I want us to see in this is we see these exact things happening, but they happened in a way that looked like weakness. Christ was born how? In a manger, in a stall, in the middle of nowhere. And how does he die? On a hill, on a cross, in the middle of town. So everyone can look at him, despising who he was. Why? Because they saw him as an evildoer. Christians then put their faith in something that was viewed as weakness. I know everyone has heard this in this room most likely. It's not original to me. But when we wear a cross, when we put our trust in Jesus dying on Calvary upon a cross, it's almost as if in modern days we were wearing a needle that people got injected with with lethal injection. Or about 50 to 60 years ago, if we wore a a chair that had electric cords coming from it, it would say that we're trusting in something that was full of defeat. But in all reality, Christ's birth nor death was the defeat of God, but rather victory of God. Well, he does exactly this. Listen to these words. There is a day that is coming, shall shut them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's the judgment of the wicked. But look at the joy of the righteous. But for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves, from the stall. Though it's S-U-N, we're talking about the sun rising. Can't help but think about the sun rising from the grave. And the spiritual connection there for us is that we now, dead men walking, leap from a grave with joy as calves leaping from a stall. Much like John the, not John the Baptist, much, much like Nicodemus comes hopping out of a grave when Christ resurrects him. We, as we trust in Jesus to save us, hopping out of a spiritual grave with much joy and excitement. Why? Because we have found healing in the wings of the sun. See, as we look at these last few verses, we can rightly understand what God was doing in that moment. But let us put ourselves in their shoes. That's how I began this, right? Malachi is helpful because it gives us context of the birth of Christ. Because of this, even the righteous misunderstood how Jesus was coming. So when Jesus came in such a minuscule way, lived a life of submission rather than notability, It was hard to look at him as the savior. They were expecting that king to ride in on a horse, kicking butt and taking names. But they got was a man that looked like weakness and destruction 
As we prepare our hearts for Advent next week, we celebrate the coming of our Savior. Let's think about, very simply, that it may not appear the way it was going to be, but Jesus certainly has done exactly what he said he would do in these three verses. He's defeated sin, he has defeated death, he has defeated the grave. And though we may taste death, we'll have no sting. Though we may be laid in a grave, we shall live again. And Christ has been the one who has conquered it all. And so we simply trust in him to redeem us, to save us. And he will return one day. Will we be living or will we be dead when he returns? Who knows? But what we do know is that everything will be made right. We will live with our Father forever, for eternity. If we have trusted in His Son to redeem and to save us. And in that moment, in those moments, for an eternity long, there will be no greater joy, no more happiness, no greater significant thing that has happened in this life. And so I'm going to say it this way, and I want to be clear with what I'm saying. So let's put the Lord to test in this regard. Let's live a life that is honoring him. Not necessarily complete with, with finances or none of those things, right? But let's live a life of good stewardness that is trusting in Christ. As the saying says, as I said earlier, it was early 2000, mid-2000s or 2010s, YOLO. We do only live once on this earth. So let's live in such a way that is honoring to God, that is glorifying to Jesus, that is living to commit to proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and resting in Jesus together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this time together. God, we pray now as we sing one last song together, God, we would do exactly what it says. We would build our lives upon you. Name above Jesus is the name above any other. And he's the only one that could save. And he's worthy of every breath that we breathe. And God, let us be people who live for you. In your son's holy name, amen.